Good morning, church. We are in John chapter 20, starting a new chapter, and it is a great chapter. Um, it's kind of fun. We get to do Easter twice this year, because uh, we're coming to the Easter passage, the resurrection of Christ. I'll read from John chapter 20, from verse 1 uh, to verse 18. John 20, it says, Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out, and the other disciple, and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, Teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Jesus. Resurrected Jesus. Living Jesus. Uh, we pray that we would hear your word for us. That we would hear you call our names that you, we would hear you call us brothers. Um, Lord, that we would come and behold what God has done in raising the dead and us with, with him, uh, us with Christ. Give us understanding of your word. Lord, help me teach it faithfully in Jesus' name. Amen. So, on the first day of the week, this is Sunday morning. Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark. Now we've met her before. She's, she was there. Um, she had been there at Christ's death and heard his last words. And, and she, had, she had been there. She had, she had endured, sat, endured Saturday that was cold and full of despair. Now it's Sunday, but just barely. It's, it's still dark. Uh, the sun had not yet risen in the sky, but she probably hasn't slept much anyway. And the Sabbath is over. It would have ended at sundown the night before. So she's prepared to work. And the work that she's prepared to do 
is uh, to come and anoint the body of Jesus. We know that from the other Gospels, that her intentions in going to the tomb was to honor the body of Jesus with more anointing oils, spices, and aloes like Nicodemus and Joseph had done on Friday. She is most certainly still in deep mourning. And this Mary, it's interesting that John would mention only Mary. Now, John tells a different kind of story here than the other Gospels. I mean, we're 20 chapters in. I'm sure you've realized this. And I'm not going to try to um, give you a synthesis of the four Gospels. We're reading John's account, and he included these details intentionally and left others out intentionally. But I'll, I'll include little bits and pieces from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, and and uh, in order to see why John focused on the details that he did, when, when you read the other Gospels, you see that Mary wasn't alone when she came to the tomb. We know that she was accompanied by other women. It's even included, included in verse 2, where she says, we know, we do not know where they have taken him. She says that she was with others. Uh, John is not denying the presence of others, but he's intentionally focusing in on Mary's story. And so we're going to do the same. Mary is presented as if she were alone. And I think this is rather insightful, knowing that as Mary appears to us in this story to be alone and lonely, she no doubt felt alone and lonely. You know, we see that grief can isolate and does isolate a person to the point where no crowd can make them feel included. And as Mary walks up the hill to the garden where Jesus' tomb had been, she is with other people, but she is alone. And as we, as we focus in on Mary, we need to become aware of something in this whole situation. And really, that is uh, what she's missed. And now, I'm not, I'm not being overly critical here. None of them expected resurrection. But I'm saying, what, I, what I'm saying is that at this point in time, as she is trudging dejectedly towards the tomb, God has already acted. The jailbreak has already occurred. And I believe it's important to note that Jesus rose from the dead while Mary already felt alone. Uh, Jesus rose from the dead when no one was watching. He didn't wait for them to get there so he could show off. Now, why is this important? Because we are so narrow in our perspective, so limited in our vision, that we can so easily come to the faulty conclusion that God doesn't act unless we see it. Now, we might not say that's what we believe. I don't think any of you would say that's what you believe. But in our hearts, with our faith, we very often lose sight of the reality that God is working when we are sleeping which is what he did this Sunday morning. This faulty faith is revealed in the work, in, or sorry, in the way that we pray. We rightfully ask God to move, to act, to come in power. But all of those prayers ought to be built on the belief that he has moved, he is acting, and that he is here. That he already started, he, he got up before you this morning, okay? He's been working before you showed up. I take heart that Christ's most awesome display of power the single most important miracle that has ever been performed, the resurrection of Christ from the dead, it happened in the dark and in silence. And at the moment it occurred, nothing seemed to have changed. 
Now it's true that afterwards there are angels, which you know some of whom John leaves out. We'll read about some of them, some of them in a second. And, and there there was a bright light and an earthquake. Matthew tells us about this in Matthew twenty eight. Um, you know the the church has been singing about the resurrection ever since it happened, but the actual act of resurrection was done in darkness. It was veiled only to be realized later by the evidence when they heard the angels and saw the Lord. There's not a whole lot of pre-dawn events recorded in the life of Christ or in the Gospels. There's really just uh, just a couple. We have the resurrection and we have Jesus' prayer life. Now, you have the, the trial as well in chapter 18, which lasted, you know, overnight, essentially, from the Garden of Gethsemane. But the other thing that Jesus got up early to do before it was light, was pray. And the, the, the power of the answered prayers, the power of God in resurrection happened in the same way that prayer did. If you need an application spelled out for you, here it is. Pray and expect those prayers to have the effect of the miraculous. Christ had a habit of getting up early to meet with God. And so here he, he continues in this habit and gets up early on Sunday in, in the dark when no one else is there. Now, I do not know if this is a reading that John intended or not, but it seems that there's truth in it nonetheless. God is working when you are not. God is working when you don't notice. God is working in darkness. God is working in grief. God has already done all the work for Mary's soul and yours, even before she knew it. Even while she was still grieving, even in her lack of faith, and I believe you can be confident that God is working in the same way in your life. When your faith is weak, he is strong. It is actually in your weakness, Paul tells us, where strength is made perfect. And notice in verse 2 that her faith is still unformed. You know, she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. She doesn't pick up on the whole reality of resurrection yet. She sees that the tomb is open, but she does not consider, cannot consider, that resurrection could possibly be a realistic explanation for what she observed. This is important when you consider just how the disciples, like Mary, dealt with resurrection. You know, some have blamed a sort of mass hysteria, a, a group hallucination sort of thing, where the disciples just wanted to believe Jesus was alive so much that they actually convinced themselves of the myth. They just wanted to believe, so they just kind of started believing. That is not how things happened. Mary did not work herself up to a make-believe faith because she wanted Jesus to be alive. As we'll, we'll see as we read, she didn't even know him when he was standing right in front of her. When he was talking to her, she couldn't believe that he was alive. The resurrection surprised everyone. It continues to surprise everyone. So she goes to Peter and John. Now this is interesting too. Out of the twelve disciples, um, you would, and out of the twelve that you may expect to see together, these two are a bit of a surprise. It's true that we saw them together on the night that Jesus was betrayed, um, but you'll remember that you know there was John who was the closest, most loyal disciple in the bunch. And then Peter, on the other hand, had denied Christ three times. And the last that we saw him, he was weeping bitterly. 
And I find it encouraging and beautiful that those two men are together early Easter morning. John doesn't distance himself from Peter because of Peter's failures. Peter doesn't isolate himself from his friend because of his shame. There's some lessons there to be sure. So Mary comes, maybe maybe wakes them up. I don't know how early it still is. She was dark when she went up. Maybe the sun's risen by now. Seems that like it has. Uh, but it's been a hard weekend. Perhaps she knocks hard on the door and wakes these guys up. And uh, she shares her theory. Someone had stolen the body. So Peter therefore went out and the other disciple, verse 3, and were going to the tomb. So they ran, they both ran together and the other disciple, that's John, outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloth lying there, yet he did not go in. Now, many have pointed to the comedy in these verses. John included includes for all time and eternity the fact that he's faster than Peter. Peter comes up huffing and puffing and John says, I beat you, made it here first, thank you very much. And Peter says, so what? No one's ever going to know. And John would just smile and think to himself, everyone will know, actually. Uh, but seriously, there's, there's probably some more reasons why this is included. Um, this, like most of the details uh, that John uh, puts in his, his gospel are included for, for one reason, to show that this is an eyewitness account. That these are details not added later, but these are the details of someone who was there and saw and remembers the actual sequence of events. He was there, he saw it, he remembers the specifics. There could also be another truth being conveyed here. Even though John gets to the tomb first, he does not enter without Peter. Peter was the first among the disciples. He was the leader of the disciples, and John may be showing some respect and giving preference to Simon Peter. Verse 6, that says, Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Whatever held John back had no grip on Peter. What makes Peter so relatable, and, and at the same time so easy to make fun of sometimes, it is also what makes him so strong an apostle, such a role model for us. John holds back, and Peter barges in. In the, in the next chapter, we'll read about their fishing trip, and Jesus on the shore calls out to them, and Peter realizes who it is, and he's the one that jumps overboard and swims to shore, swims to Jesus. He appears at times to be impulsive, but it is that rush of decision that also makes him first to enter the tomb of Jesus, first to swim to the shore. And on Pentecost, the first to preach a new covenant sermon resulting in the birth of the church, the salvation of thousands. Peter, at this point, has failed more than any of the other disciples. And it is his sin that drives him, his awareness that he is sinful and lost and in need of a great Savior that drives him to Christ. Peter comes into the tomb and he sees the linen cloths and this specific cloth that would have been around Christ's head folded in a place by itself. These are the burial cloths. And it was these linen cloths that had been soaked and applied along with 100 pounds, 100 Roman pounds, so 75 of our 16 ounce pounds, of oil and spices um, to, 
you know, all of this had been applied to the body of Jesus. This wasn't so much a, um, a you know, body bag or, or a sheet uh, as it was, it had become essentially a cast. Uh, the linen, the linens would be soaked and uh, some suppose that the, this would cause them essentially to harden. This is a mummification process that's happening. This had led some to believe, this has led some to believe that Jesus, who can walk through walls at this point, as we'll see, had exited the grave clothes without disturbing them, taking only the bandage about his head and folding it. This would have meant that Peter and John observed essentially undisturbed but deflated linens, still mostly in the shape of a body, maybe like a, a hollow cocoon. This would explain why John, upon seeing this, put the idea of grave robbers far from his mind. It says, then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. He saw that the body had left the tomb and had not had to rip out of the cast that had contained it. He saw also that the care was taken to put things in some order. The handkerchief, the bandage around his head was folded. This is very unthief-like. And it's the order of this room, the care taken that, that shows thieves did not come in and take the body that causes John to believe. At this moment, John believes that God had raised Jesus from the dead. This is pretty remarkable, again, because he has not seen the body of the resurrected Lord. When Jesus encounters Thomas, he says, blessed are those who believe having not seen. He's talking about a similar belief to that which John uh, has here. It's a similar blessing. John had faith when he saw what wasn't there. And his faith became, as Hebrews 11 says it will, it became the substance of things not seen. Belief, of course, has been a major theme in John's gospel. It is the purpose of the book. It is, it is written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God. And it's important to see here that John was not foisting on his hearers or his readers something that he didn't hold on to himself. The gospel of John is personal, and the gospel that John writes is intended to be personal. If you skip to the end of our text here, Mary Magdalene's message of the gospel is both that she personally had seen the Lord and she is sharing the things that the Lord had said. It is personal. Matthew and Mark do not have anything in the first person. They never say, I, Matthew, I, Levi, I, Mark. You know, they don't, they don't say that. Luke has a little bit in his prologue to Theophilus. But John references himself in code, incognito, several times. It has the tone of an eyewitness, of course, but it has the tone of a brother, too. John is saying, I want you to have what I have. Come with me. I want to share what I have been given he said many times, and he will say it again before the book is through, these things are written that you may believe. But in building that argument and presenting that gift to bring people to faith, he includes the record of the moment when he passed from doubt to belief. Your testimony is a powerful thing. As you present the gospel to others, as you present your own beliefs, your own faith is inseparable from that presentation. The gospel is not just presenting information, it is testimony. It is not simply that God saves, but that God saves us. It's not simply that God loves, though that would be enough. It's that God loves us. John is in 
inviting people into a faith that he had experienced himself, that had changed his life, and the same should be said of us. Look again at the nature of this faith in verse 9. It says, For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. And talk about your mustard seeds, right? One, one of my favorite verses, one of my favorite prayers in the Bible is this. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. So often we are walking contradictions as people, as believers. John believed, but he didn't really know what he believed yet. He didn't really get it. Not the fullness of it. He believed that Jesus wasn't there. And I think he even believed that Jesus was alive somehow. But he didn't know the scripture that Christ must rise from the dead. He didn't know the theological understanding. Um, his, his understanding here is limited at this point to the simplest, most foundational truth. He lives. What do you do about that? How do you understand that? Why did this just happen? Was it a spiritual resurrection? Had he ascended into heaven? Was he alive but invisible? He, John doesn't know. He has no idea. So he goes home. Now, Jesus is merciful and gracious to those who, with weak faith, with unformed faith, and he is faithful to strengthen the things that remain, the weak things. And so we pray, Lord, I believe, but I know I'm missing it. Lord, I, I believe that, that you're good, that you're a rewarder of those who diligently seek you, uh, and, and I know that's not enough. I know there's more to believe. I know that there's more of you for an eternity of discovery. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Peter and John knew the facts of the resurrection, some of them, without knowing its meaning or its implications. We know now from Scripture that the resurrection means that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of Holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, Romans 1, 4. The resurrection means that we have assurance of our own eventual resurrection. You know, we know that if we believe Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus, 1 Thessalonians 4.14. These are realizations that Peter and John just hadn't come to yet. These are implications that weren't there for John. They, they believed, but it's, a, it's what you might call a primordial faith. And it was weak. And what seems to be the difference in a weak faith and in a growing faith, or at least the difference in this story, between those who grow slowly and those who are granted by the grace of God more insight, more quickly, is simply the staying power. Maybe this isn't universal, but in this story, we see a blessing on the one who waits and sticks around and stays and struggles for a little bit longer. John and Peter go home. Mary returns and stays. This is her second time to the tomb this morning. Verse 11, Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, and where the body of Jesus, where the body of Jesus had lain. Now in verse 11, uh, Mary doesn't have access to any information that John and Peter had, you know, prior to this, this angelic revelation. They were at the same tomb. It's the same Sunday morning. They all had the same view of things. Peter and John go home, and Mary stays. The only difference, initially, is that Mary was willing to wait it out. Or to use the King James language used sometimes, to tarry. <laughs> to wait around for something to happen. Waiting in silent, patient faith. 
waiting for something to happen, waiting for nothing to happen, and trusting in God for either. Now, and then there's, there's two pretty cool blessings that Mary gets in return for her patience. She gets a vision of angels in verse 12, and then she gets a visit from Jesus, which we'll see in a second. Now, this may be reading into the text, forgive me if I'm spiritualizing, but I want you to know that this is a real key element for your devotional life. Just stick around where Jesus is and wait. Stay late. Pray. And then when you think you're done praying and about to get up and move on with your life, stick around for a little bit more. Stay in his presence for another 60 seconds or two minutes. Read your Bible like you normally do. Good habits. And then before you finish up, wait. Sit there. Sit in silence. Hold on to the place where you are just a little bit longer. Again, this is the second time that Mary has come to the tomb. She's the only one there. She wants to go deeper. She wants a little bit more. She wants to consider this mystery before her with more dedication, more focus, and she gets to. The angel, the, the angels there that she sees, they don't seem to mess her up too much, which is interesting. You know, John doesn't say she fell down afraid or anything like that. Hebrews 13 talks about people entertaining angels unaware, and maybe that Mary at this point, because of her grief, because of whatever, isn't really sure that these are angels. She doesn't recognize Jesus at first either, so it seems to add up. But they ask her a question. In verse 13, they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Mary, waiting in faith, in some faith, the mustard seed of faith, is still in this place of confusion with thoughts of grave robbers threatening, uh, threatening her faith. But she stayed late enough for the good stuff because here's Jesus willing to come to the weak, to the mourning, to the brokenhearted and make all those sufferings untrue. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Now this is just like Mary's experience so far this morning. While she was mourning, God was working. Even when she was sleeping, God was working. When she was suffering and worrying, God had defeated death and provided all the answers. Now she is seeking Jesus and he's already close at hand. He is nearer than she knows. Don't ever think that once you get that intention in your heart, that longing in your heart for Christ, don't think that you were the first one to turn and walk towards him. Don't ever think that he didn't get a head start. He started walking towards you before you woke up. Don't you see that he has been close to you? Jesus was there, but she didn't know it. She didn't know it was him. There could be a number of reasons for this. She wasn't expecting to see Jesus, so it wasn't a real possibility in her mind. Her eyes are veiled with tears. She is emotionally distressed and confused. But this is where Jesus comes to her and asks, Why are you weeping? And whom are you seeking? Um... Did we read that? I don't remember. Yeah, we did. Okay. Two questions. Now, we've talked about this before, and it's important. God asks questions of us so that we can understand something about him and something about ourselves. He does not ask questions because he needs information. 
He asks questions because we need times of reflection. And sometimes if someone doesn't ask the question, we'll never consider the things that are worth thinking about. Jesus never wasted a word. The Holy Spirit didn't waste words. And the apostles didn't waste ink. These questions are important. And there are times when these words may very well be the questions you need to ask yourself in order to examine the things worth examining. Why are you weeping? Jesus asks. Now Jesus is about to reveal to her the most joyful truth that there is. That there is no need to weep in the tomb. There's no need to weep even in a graveyard. She is sad because Jesus is dead, but if Jesus is alive, then she doesn't need to be sad. This makes sense. It's practically a syllogism, logical and airtight. But Christ may ask you the question, considering weeping or beyond weeping, why are you afraid? If God is for us, who can be against us? Why are you discouraged? Psalm 42, verse 5, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God. You have these questions to examine yourself. Why am I like this? Why am I anxious about these things? Why am I disobedient in these things? Why am I afraid of these things? God will often show you the futility of your fears and your sorrows in the light of his victory and comfort. After he asks you, Why are you like this? Look at me. Why are you... Why are you feeling like this when I am alive? But the second question goes a little deeper. Whom are you seeking? Now, this question can be asked uh, in either as in a couple different ways. It can either be a convicting correction or a gentle invitation. For Mary, it's certainly the latter. It's an invitation. But if God asks you, what are you looking for? Or really, who are you looking for? You might not be happy with your honest answer. And I suggest you always answer God's questions honestly. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God. We're told to put God first. Are you? What are you seeking? Whose glory are you after? Is it yours? Or is it his? Whose comfort are you after? Whose success what is your objective in this life? Those who seek their life lose it. What's your objective? It should be Jesus. And if it's not, then feel the sting of this question. But maybe you're there. Maybe you are where Mary is, hungering, wanting, like Mark said of Joseph of Arimathea, craving the body of Jesus. Well then, the question turns to invitation. It becomes, the evident, it becomes evident that Jesus intends to reveal himself to Mary. He's trying to tell her, it's me. The question, whom are you seeking, takes on a kind of rhetorical, playful nature even, like saying, look who's home. Or even, aren't you happy to see me, Mary? Who, who, else, who else could you possibly be looking for when Jesus is right there? If you want Jesus, he is there to be found by you. If you crave Jesus and hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are you, for you will be filled. Mary, still frantic, confused, thinking Jesus is just a gardener, says, tell me where you put him. Her love is evident. What did she think she was going to do with him? She says, I'll take him away. Could she do this? Would she be able to carry him herself? What was the end game she had in mind? Doesn't matter. Didn't matter to her. She loved much. She wanted Jesus. She was willing to stick it out, even at a tomb. 
He was willing to argue with men and angels for the purpose of getting to where Jesus is. And Jesus honors this hunger. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. She knows how Jesus says her name. His sheep hear his voice, and they know him. Jesus says her name and is revealed to her in this small word. In the same way that God's questions to us are for our benefit, not his, so there is a paradox where God reveals himself to us, sometimes by telling us who we are. Ephesians chapter 1 is full of this, right? The book of Ephesians is like this. God calls us saints, and when he does, we know him to be a God who justifies the ungodly. He is a God who has mercy on sinners, who makes us holy. He must be if he's going to call us saints. When God calls us chosen, we learn that he is not passive, that he is active and intentional about saving and blessing. When he calls us blessed, we learn that he is a generous God with enough to go around and he has your best interest at heart. And when Jesus says, Mary, I believe she knows that Jesus loves her. Isaiah 43 verse 1 says this, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. And when Jesus says to Mary, calls her by her name, the rest is implied. You're mine, Mary. I have redeemed you and you have no reason to fear. This verse becomes true for Mary. But Isaiah 43 verse 1 can be true of you as well. God knows your name. He knows you individually. In Revelation 2, verse 17, Jesus offers those who overcome a white stone. He says, And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Jesus has a nickname for you that he made up himself that no one else knows. Jesus will call you by a new name. He will rename you. What do you do with this kind of God who knows your name, who calls you by name, who says, you are mine? Well, what does Mary do? She clings to him. In verse 17, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. Now, this has been... The cause for some confusion, of course, partly because of the King James translation says, do not touch me or touch me not, actually. So, you know, some people have assumed, oh, Jesus, you know, he's got that radioactive resurrection glow about him and, or something. It's preventing Mary from coming to touch him because it's like too holy and she's not holy enough or something. No, that, that's not what's going on at all. This wasn't a supernatural germ or something that he's trying to save her from. This is what he says. He says, you don't need to squeeze me so hard. I'm not going anywhere. The idea is she's holding him. She's clinging to him to see if he's real, thinking, I'm not going to let you go again. I'm not going to let you go again. And he says, I haven't left yet. I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving. Which is exactly what he says after he ascends, or bef sorry, right before he ascends in Matthew 28, saying, I will never leave you or forsake you. I am with you always. And it's that encouragement given to those who would just stay with Jesus until they draw their last breath out of love for him, out of devotion. Mary's holding on to him, seeing if he's real, perhaps thinking that he's a ghost. And Jesus says, I haven't gone to heaven. 
And then he says, I will be going there and you need to tell people about it. What Mary is experiencing is emotional and it is devotional. It's the stuff of deep soul work. It's miraculous. And Jesus almost immediately pulls her out of that place where she is simply clinging to the body. And then she sends, sorry, he sends her to work. This is what you do with the God who calls you by name and says you are mine. You go where he goes and you, you go where he tells you. Christ commissions a missionary. He sends her with a message of hope that is theologically rich. The, the hope that Christ lives and is soon ascending to heaven, having defeated the grave, that's huge. And then there's deep theology attached uh, to this in that he says it's his God is your God and his father is, is your father. And consider the mercy here. The disciples who had scattered, who had denied him, he calls brethren. Don't miss this. This is the first time Jesus calls his disciples my brothers. He's called them little children. Uh, he's even called them my friends. Now he calls them his brothers. He has said the one who does the will of my father is my mother, sister, and brother, but that's different than addressing someone as my brother. And Jesus, born of woman, truly human, is our brother in that sense. But now that sin has dealt, been dealt with, the sacrifice has been made, Jesus, who justifies the ungodly, could call sinners like the disciples and like us, brothers who are now partakers of the divine nature. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 and verse 11, it says, For it was fitting for him, for whom all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. This is the news that Mary is sent with, and this is God's message for you from the tomb. I call you brothers. This is the message that you've been entrusted with, to, to preach to every creature, to every nation. God invites you into his family. He sanctifies you, and you become one with the one who sanctifies. All the way back in John chapter 1. Uh, John chapter 1, right there at the beginning of the book, John laid it all out. He wrote why he was writing, what he was trying to do. In John chapter 1, verse 12, it says this. It says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. When Jesus calls them brothers, when he says, my God is now your God, when he says, my father is your father, he's saying, to you has been given the right to become children of God. He is inviting us to rejoice in the power of the gospel, the power to reconcile God and man, to include us into his family. I pray that you would come to see the tomb, that you would hear him call your name, that you would know that you have been made family, and that you would realize that you have been commissioned to preach this message to the world. Let's pray. Jesus, we rejoice in your grace towards Mary. We rejoice in your mercy on Mary and Peter and John and on us. Jesus, we believe that you are good. We believe that you are a rewarder of those who diligently seek you. We believe, God, that you justify the ungodly. And that's us. We believe that your death and your resurrection were not only real, but that they were effective. God, I pray that 
you would fill us with the hunger and thirst for Christ, for yourself, and also with the boldness to go and preach this message. In Jesus' name, amen.